It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Dan Englander, founder of Sales Schema. They help business owners, salespeople, and account managers generate more business with existing customers. He's also the author of a couple books, The B2B Sales Blueprint, and more recently, Mastering Account Management, 102 Steps for Increasing Sales. Dan, welcome to Accelerate. Hey, thank you for having me, Andy. My pleasure. So take a minute, introduce yourself, and tell us how you got your start in sales. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of stumbled into sales and landed this job as an account manager at an animation studio called Idea Rocket. So I was basically the first hire there. Now, where, um, where was that? This was here in, in New York City. In New York City, okay. New York City, big city. Yeah, so, you know, the, the idea, the differentiator they were going for in a nutshell was basically to bring um, high-quality broadcast-style animation to explainer videos, which if you don't know, these are the videos that you'll see on a startup's page or a company's page that kind of describe what they do. So, you know, I, I had a lot of head trash about sales. Um, I, I Like a lot of people, I thought it was something for, for like, characters in Glengarry Glen Ross and I kind of <laughs> fashioned myself as a creative um, of some sort. So, uh, you know, eventually once we hit a low point and I was basically just an order taker doing proposals for people that would never get back to me, um, my, the owner was like, hey, you know, are you interested in getting sales training? And I was like, yeah, I probably, I probably should at this point. So, you know, I got training. I ended up really hitting it hard, um, networking, meeting lots of people, reading lots of books. And then, you know, kind of turned things around, learned all the best practices that, that you'll, you talk about on the show so much and, and from different people. Um, but the problem was that I, I was wearing a lot of hats. So it started out with just two of us in the company. And then, you know, it scaled up to, to eventually 10. But still, I was just always doing too much. I had to also serve clients at the same time, manage projects and, and whatnot, um, which is something common, I think, of a lot of business owners that also have to sell. So, you know, even, even when I did set up this process for kind of protecting my sales time and, and doing it every day as this continuous everyday effort, um, I still just never had enough time. So what I started doing was just being more vigilant about qualification and moreover, just kind of really focusing on account management. Um, and that can vary a little bit between organizations in terms of what that definition is. But basically, what I mean by that is trying to get more business out of the existing clients and trying to win the customers that are more likely to lend themselves to repeat business in the first place and really putting full force into those as, as opposed to giving people equal time um, in, in terms of the sales process. Okay. Which is, yeah, it's a, it's a choice that, you know, a lot of salespeople are sort of confronted with how they allocate their time. Right. So, you know, part of that, I think, obviously, is driven by businesses, you know, growth goals, right? Because you really can't, can't completely grow and attain your growth goals purely through repeat business from existing customers. No, no, not at all. Um, but what, you know, what I've observed is that often it's the most neglected element of, of the, you know, of the sales food pyramid, as, as, as it were. Um, and I always wonder about that because, because, you know, I've, I've worked with lots of salespeople and networked met lots of people. And, um, what tends to happen is, is that people, I think, feel awkward about reapproaching old customers and asking them to buy. And it's, it's sort of, 
the irony, because I think early on, um, most salespeople's fears are, are with cold calls and with new prospects, but quickly that, that sort of becomes um, easy, easy to deal with. And what becomes more awkward is, is approaching somebody you've developed these collegial bonds with and trying to get them to repurchase in some way. I think that that becomes a little bit more cryptic of a process. Really? So why, why do you think that? Because I think that that's sort of counterintuitive for you know, yeah. most, most people because yeah. they think, hey, it's just easier to... Even even a prior customer that's no longer doing business with you, but you know there's an opportunity to go back and approach them. It seems like that would always be easier than somebody cold. Right. I, I think I think it's it's awkward because you have developed that relationship at this point. You've already gone through this sort of trial by fire to get to persuade them to buy, and then it's sort of like they've now become customers. Right. They're sort of, they're almost like your friend. It's sort of like if you had to go ask your friend to to buy from you, it would feel more awkward than if you had to ask a stranger a lot of the time. But you know, I think s- some other salespeople might might not have that problem. And another problem that people deal with is just lacking a process for doing it and they're left with nothing else to, to say to their old customers but hey you know what's new uh did you see the jets game are you ready to buy again um and that that is is tough because it doesn't really you're you're not in the same process that you had originally with the customer basically you're what? in something else and you're trying you're just suggesting things but you don't really know what they're dealing with again so you have to find a way to kind of reinitiate the original process yeah so i think really the point, and you know, we'll get to that, I think, as we continue to go through the discussion today, is that mm-hmm. you really can't, well, I've made two things. One is you can't ever really fall out of discovery mode with an existing customer. Sure. That's a huge part of it. So as an account manager, or customer success manager, or whatever label you want to put on yourself or is put on you, is that, yeah, you can never rest on the laurels of, hey, we've, you know, we've made this customer successful. There's always some other need some other requirements, some other objective that they're trying to achieve. And as an account manager, you really have to constantly be, like I said, in that discovery mode, which brings up an right. interesting dynamic because you talk about, you know, you see account reps, maybe they get too friendly with customers. Yeah, where where do you tell people to draw that line? Because I, I, I know where I would draw it and I know where I tell people to draw it. Which is, yeah, the customer is never your friend. They're your acquaintance. But, uh, you know, it doesn't go past that. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me personally, it's less about trying to find the line between friend and salesperson as it is about, um, or friend and prospect, rather, as it is about making sure that account managers are, are trained in sales. Um, and I think that that's often something that that is neglected. And I think if you... Are making sure that your account managers are keeping their sales muscles strong and they're incentivized, then then the rest will follow, um, and that's that's a huge part of it because I think a lot of the times account management becomes kind of siloed. So you have you know you have this salesperson that that does what they're supposed to do and they persuade and they win the business, and then all of a sudden it's just into sort of order taking and project management mode. So. When account managers do come across opportunities, they don't really know how to pursue them, and they also don't know how to how to look for them in the first place. So I almost think of it sort of like how you know flight attendants um, and police officers sometimes or whoever are trained in, in uh, first aid. It's sort of the, the same idea, except it's definitely going to come up more than you know a health emergency at a baseball game or something. Trained in first aid meaning they're not full EMTs, but they're band they can band aid until somebody shows up. Exactly. Yeah, and they've they've learned a lot, and they've practiced it a lot, and they're definitely incentivized to to use those skills when when things arise. 
So, I mean, it sort of raises a bigger culture about, a bigger question, excuse me, about the sales culture within company and and how you, as you said, the customer success or account management's relatively siloed. But many companies see are are migrating to saying, hey, you know, this is an integral part of our overall revenue plan. Mm-hmm. Thus, you know, there's metrics, there's goals, the expectations that are laid on that are just as stringent as they would be for salespeople. Right, right, exactly. Um, and I, I think, though, that that where, and it obviously is going to depend on the nature of the product. If, if you have a product that's more about retention and making sure that people don't drop off, maybe it's a SaaS product or something, then account management is, is going to be treated differently than if it's a sort of project-based model like I'm used to. And you know, in my previous life, um, so I think that that if it's if it's the latter, then it's it's almost like you have to be involved. You have to focus on on staying involved and being helpful, as opposed to you know making sure that that the product is that they're getting results from the product directly. Um, so I think you have to kind of there there is a different a differentiator between those two different models. Um, yeah, and and beyond that, I think kind of unifying, you know, sales and account management involves making sure that the account manager knows exactly how things played out on the sales call and exactly what people are expecting and that the sort of process that's laid out is unified between between the two parties. I mean the handoff. The handoff is is a big part of it, but I think even beyond that. Um a lot of the times, you know, especially with project-based products, uh, people, the account managers work really hard to get everybody results, and then you have people implementing it, be it a website or, or a video, and then everybody kind of waves goodbye at the end because of all the hard work that was just done. Maybe there were you know high and low points in the engagement, um, but instead, you know, you really have to kind of build in the prospect of repeat business from I think the first call, uh, and. There's different ways to do that, but to get specific, one way that I think is really valuable is for that SDR, for that account executive, to um, lay out a debrief call at the end, you know, which is a chance or some other session. You can give it a much sexier name, but basically a chance for the account manager and the other salespeople to, to come back into the picture and make sure that the customer is getting the best results from the product or service, basically. So this um, is a debrief call at the end of implementation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Follow up. Um, and instead of making that an afterthought where you're forced to kind of call people up and, and, you know, see if you can get them. And then that, what that does is it kind of implies to them that you're just looking for more business, um, as opposed to setting up, setting it up at the beginning, which lets them know, Hey, this is part of what we do. And we don't, we don't separate it because we want to make sure you get results. Yeah. So I, I guess that raised the question I was going to ask is so in, in, cause we're talking about again, more distinct sort of, Discrete project work as opposed to sort of an ongoing software SaaS type type relationship with a customer sure. in account management in this environment is yeah there's there's certainly this need every company should be looking at ways to have an aspect of recurring revenue in there you don't want to bring that prospect up or bring the the prospect of recurring revenue up at the beginning of the sales process I think I think you can just as long as it is solving a challenge that your prospects have now or are likely to have by the end of, of the engagement. Okay. I mean, I think that 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of various examples. You know, if you have a website, right. certainly yeah. there's some sort of ongoing engagement. Yeah, you know, I mean, for a website, the, the most natural thing, and, and this kind of brings me to the next point, which um, I think a lot of the times people kind of think of it as a zero-sum thing. Like, either, either they purchase our flagship offering or it's off or not. But I think it helps if, if you are focused on involvement as opposed to repurchase of, of your main offering. So to give, you know, to, to give some examples, that might be an upsell or an ancillary offering. If you're selling websites, it could be SEO services. Um, it, it also could be you know, staying involved by building case studies and sort of getting them involved with your marketing people of some sort. Because um, that's that kind of becomes a, a two birds with one stone thing. Because then they're also getting some coverage on your site and in your marketing materials, and you're you're kind of tied at the hip with with their success at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing is is like just introductions to other service providers in your world. Because then all of a sudden they, they yeah they enter your network of people that you work with, and when other needs arise, they they're going to be more likely to kind of come back to you, and your you know your partners are going to be able to sell for you. Um, so I think kind of being open-minded about these opportunities and being creative is, is much better than just sort of focusing on on this one thing. Okay. Repurchase. Okay. So in your book, you divide uh, your 102 steps for increasing sales, your account management book, into nine different sections. So the first section is time. And I was just going to go through sure. a few of the points I thought were kind of interesting or worth discussing. So um, one is in, under time, you say limit emails and limit phones. Now, what, what do you mean by that? Well, basically this, this was drawn from my experience and that of many people that are kind of like what I like to call for lack of a better word, utility sales players. So the people that are tasked with with serving clients and doing sales at the same time. So the problem is if you, you know, if you let a project, if you let something go, you can probably move heaven and earth to fix it. You can delegate things, you can get help and so on. But you can't make a sale happen out of thin air usually. It's, it's, it's more unpredictable than that. So it has to be this continuous everyday effort. So, you know, to limit email and, and limit phones, um, that's, is, it, I basically lay out kind of specific ways to limit those distractions so that when you do devote time to sales, you're not having clients hit you up. Uh, when you are devoting time to clients, you're not having prospects hit you up. But basically just kind of systematizing these things so that you don't let one of them fall by the wayside. Yeah, I thought there was a phrase in there I thought I would take issue with. You talked about deferring prospects to the end of the day probably wouldn't lose the business. And I say that because I come from the 180-degree perspective, which is responsiveness is the single most important habit you can develop as a, as a sales rep. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it depends on on the situation a lot. Um, I, I guess my feeling is that with with prospects that you've already spoken with, uh, and you are you do have the specific situation I'm talking about where you have the heavy weight of projects on your shoulders. It's good to carve out some time to get back to the prospects, even if it is at the end of the day. I think if you're a full-time salesperson, you're in a completely different boat than, than this section right now. So I think that's the context. Yeah, well, no, I've, I've operated in that environment for a good chunk of my career before I started my own company, uh, before running sales teams. So earlier in my career, I had, that was the mode I operated. You know, I was account manager right. and account exec. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, really, that's really how I came to the understanding of how important responsiveness was. By Right, right. And I never disagree with, with the importance of responsiveness. Yeah. I guess what I was trying to get at there is to really batch up your tasks and to make sure that you're not having one thing pull you away from another. Mm-hmm. Um, so that if, you know, 
to sort of get people to stop freaking out as much about what might be coming into the inbox. So that's sure. kind of what I was going for there. Okay. But yes, I will not. I will not argue that responsiveness is uh, is something is something trivial. So. Okay, now in your second section, serving your customers, you have an interesting one. You put out fires by offering options. So what did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, what, what I meant there is, is oftentimes um, when something goes wrong, people will just apologize profusely uh, and, and not really offer any specifics about what can be done. So what I like to do there is just make things, make the decision-making process as easy for, for your client as possible. So, and mechanically that, that often means just kind of laying things out in, you know, an A, B or C format with a recommendation. Um, and that's, that's definitely more on the client services side of things. But I think these things end up being tied together, obviously, because it's hard to get a repurchase if, Sure. Put out these fires. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inevitably, there's fire in every every relationship at some point or another. Nothing ever goes 100 percent smoothly. So I thought it was interesting. What you're saying is, yeah, you, know, you can make a recommendation for the customer what they what the best option is, but you're saying probably better to involve them in the decision making about what should be done by offering multiple options. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's good. But would you you don't want to create decision fatigue? But you do often want to give them things to choose from so that they can kind of take ownership over what happens as well. Okay. So in your next <laughs> so it's section, a fine line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I think it's a good, a good option to offer people. So in your next section, you had talked about uh, you have your account management dashboard, and I like your use of the term the likelihood legend. So why don't you tell <laughs> people what, what that is and uh, how you put that to use. Yeah. The likelihood legend is basically just a benchmarking system. So, you know, there's all sorts of tools that, that you can use. There's all sorts of CRMs that will lay out your pipeline in different ways. And I'm, I, I like to be agnostic. Well, lay it out by stages with probabilities right. associated with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what I was trying to get across was that, and it's basically um, a benchmark system so that you have a consistent way to rate where prospects are in your pipeline so that you're not, you're not guessing, um, at each and every, at each and every stage. So, you know, it's going to vary depending, um, on, on the nature of the offering, but basically you want, you want consistency based on actions as opposed to just your gut or things that people have said or whatnot. So it's, it's, it becomes just a, a way to, to rate your leads. Um, and what I was trying to do is give, you know, account managers and utility sales players and business owners a lot of the time, just sort of, an easy way to conceptualize how to rate their leads without going too far into the the CRM rabbit hole, you know, and getting overwhelmed with it. Right. But I think the thing that you point out, which is interesting for people to think about, is that it's it's the one you lay out as an example is not based on some actions you take. So almost all forecasts I see, all the companies I deal with. You know, it's hey, it's fifty percent probability because we got we did a demo. Suddenly, it becomes fifty percent probability, and it's seventy five percent probability if we submit a proposal. And you know, and to me, those are worthless benchmarks and stage right. mark demarkers. Where you demarcations where you have got um, you know examples like you know you've got agreement that the budget's acceptable. You've got uh, your know your they notify you you're in their short list. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah. there's things you have that are are more precise based on information that you receive from the customer, and I think that's really the key thing for people that mm-hmm. I I liked about the way you expressed that is that when you build your your forecast pipeline, your pipeline forecast, yeah, the the stages have to be determined and defined by what the customer tells you, not by what you think is going on. Right, exactly, and and, uh, and thank you for that. I think that. 
a lot of the times people will kind of prioritize activity over actual, you know, reality or results. Um, so it becomes easy to be like, well, I've gone through this stage and, and therefore the, the process is, is here. So yeah, it definitely does have to be on, on the customer side in terms of what, how they're thinking and what they've done. Or yeah. Side. yeah. Yeah. And I, I talked about some of my most recent book, Amp Up Your Sales, is that, you know, if you have four competitors, if there's four competitors on the deal, you're one of them and you all have the same forecasting system, which is that submitting a proposal means you have a 75% probability of winning the deal. Well, all four of you can't have the 75% chance of winning the deal. Right. If you've all <laughs> submitted a proposal. So, yeah, right. you know, there's a huge, huge fallacy and flaw built into those forecasting methodologies. So, Unless you know for a fact that who else is involved in the deal and you've really done some hard qualification and stuff. But even then, it becomes a little bit, well, it involves guesswork, you know? So, yeah. 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 And like I said, not everybody can have the same probability. Right. So, you know, doing that, I, I call that, you know, when you base it, your probability based on the distance into the deal that you've traveled, you know, I say you can't measure probability with a yardstick. That's right. That's basically what you're trying to do, which is, yeah, a much better way that you you put forward, which is good. Um, oh gosh, in your section on sales process, you talk about making your pitch focus on the why. This is you know we've books written about focusing on your why, Simon Sinek, and so on. But sure. But uh, tell people what you mean about uh, focusing on the why. Um, I think I think it just creates an emotional connection more than other things, and you know I don't think I claim to be the one to, to be the first one to say focus on the why, but it definitely was uh, helpful for me to start doing that. And actually, it, it, what it does is is it creates understanding about what makes you different without people being feel without making people feel like they're being sold. I think that's that's the key to it. Um, you can say, you know, our differentiators for us at Idea Rocket were we focus on high quality animation. We we do all this, that, and the third. And you know, you can't actually say that specifically, or I did rather. But I think when I started saying I, I, I got started Idea Rocket because, or we started Idea Rocket because we realized that if you have a complex message, people need to understand it quickly, and it needs to speak well of your brand. So that's why we take this particular approach to animation. So I think when I just started phrasing it in that way, um, I could just sense a much more of, a, of an emotional reaction to what I was saying. So that's sort of where I was coming from with that section. Yeah, man, it does, it does help to, in one form, whether it's through a story or, or a metaphor or something, explain the why behind your product and your service and your offering. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I think that there's different, different ways to get that across, but I think it's the fastest way to kind of create that, that sort of reaction. By, by phrasing things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, you have another interesting phrase I like that uh, used in your tips and tools section. You said, prevent sales atrophy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, again, tell people yeah. what you meant by that, and we'll talk about this some because that's an important lesson. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just really, as with anything, I think it's really, really just easy to kind of get stuck going through the motions um, and then kind of making assumptions about prospects is one of the most common things I observe is, you know, you've dealt with what is seemingly the same situation over and over again that you, yeah, you start assuming things are a certain way. You start cutting corners. You might not explain things in the right way. You might not send this or that follow up that you would normally send. Um, and, and, you know, you, you also just, I think, I think it's kind of like a, a glass of water that keeps spilling out and you have to keep refilling it. Um, it's, it takes, you know, it takes some, um, some stamina to ask these tough questions. And I think that that 
can kind of start to to drain out of people after a while where they're like you know i could i could ask really how they're going to be making the decision um or i i think i have kind of a good idea because i've dealt with other prospects like this and and you know in the it space so I'll, I'll just leave that be for now and that's kind of what i mean by be, a being conscious that that is a thing that it will probably happen and b you know kind of staying on top of your game um if making sure that you're getting on enough calls and that you're not sort of you know allowing yourself to, to stagnate and, and yeah just kind of being aware of it yeah well i think people listening you know probably again heard me say this but you know, every prospect without sounding too trite every prospect is like a snowflake you know yeah. they're all yeah. they're all each one is individual the way they process information gather information is unique they you may seem like you're getting the same questions but that's not the same person asking it right exactly so you really and, need to be you know sort of gets into I've had a guest on the show. We've talked about mindfulness within selling. You really need to be, you need to be present. You know, you need to be eliminate distractions. Listen without your bias filters up. Listen without judgment. Right, right. And I think it's worth pointing out that when you say the same thing over and over again, it's you. You sound. You become your own biggest critic. You become like your own heckler in your head. Um, but you have to remember that your prospect has never heard this before. Each and every prospect has never heard this before. So you have to just kind of keep, you know, keep up the energy, keep going through it. Well, I, actually, yeah. I, I, to me, it's almost almost the opposite, right? Is that the customer? Chances are the customers have heard pretty much the same thing from your competitors. So you really need to be mindful. To me, you know, every time I have an opportunity to present to a prospect, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, they've they've heard this. So what am I going to say that's different? Right. That's, that's important too. Or, you know, if you, if it it depends on the situation, I think if you aren't dealing with the competitive situation as much, then it is about making them feel, um, the pain of not working with you, you know, or of not getting the solution as much too. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think the, like finding a way, and that's why I like going back to the why is I, I think it's sort of, verbally separates you from from the sort of noise that they're going through on the other half dozen people they've researched in Google, you know. Yeah, and there's and and last point on this one, there's there's always competition, right? Because they can sure. always make the decision to do nothing, and so that yeah. is that is to that's me the biggest competitor. That is the biggest competitor. That's the one that you have to really be selling against more than your competitors. Right. Exactly. All right. Uh, yeah. Interesting point in your section on farming about uh, providing a take home guide. So I think I know what you meant by that from having read through it because uh, I had something similar, at least I think of similar that I did. But I want you to tell people what you meant when you've got a customer, you sold, close the deal. What is the take-home guide? Yeah, it's basically some sort of, of useful tool or material that is going to help your customers get the best results from your product or service, uh, even if they never choose to, to work with you again. Um, so I, I think that it, it's sort of differentiated from just general content marketing because it's a little bit more special. It's a little bit more tailored to the person that actually ha- now has your product or has you know undergone your, your services. So it's something that, that can be keeping you in front of, of your prospects and your customers, or customers rather, um, in a way that a Christmas card uh, really can't. So that's that's sort of the idea of it. And since I've wrote this book, you know, I think that there's a lot of more tools that have kind of become uh, mainstays. Um, 
and there's different ways to deliver a take-home guide. It doesn't necessarily have to just be like a PDF. It could be an autoresponder series over email, or it could be a, you know, a video series or something else like that. Uh, but the idea is that it's, it's something that, that is actually valuable that you can present to your, your existing customers. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I, one thing I would add to it is mm-hmm. at the beginning, and again, I talk about this in one of my books, is, is I think especially in sort of project work, really important, and especially in competitive situations, is that when the customer's given you the order, the, the first thing you want to do as a sales rep is pick up the phone, and you can do this with the account manager, pick up a phone or in person, meet with them, and do a decision review. Say, mm-hmm. look, this is, this is why you contacted us in the first place, or we contacted you. This is what your requirements were. This is why we bid what we bid. This is why you accepted our bid. This is what we're delivering and when. Right, right. I think that's good. If you put that into that take-home guide, as sort of the first chapter, Mm-hmm. I think that starts becoming really powerful because then they can always reference back because in any sort of competitive situation, what happens when the customer makes the decision, let's say they're talking to four vendors, in their mind, what they bought was sort of like the best of each of the four vendors. Right. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're conf- not, not they're necessarily confused, but it's just the way the mind works, right? Yeah. This is what's attracted me, da, 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 da. And I've seen it so many times then when you actually deliver the project, you deliver the work, you deliver the product, there's this little bit of disappointment. It's like, wait, didn't we order, you know, doesn't this come with, think about your own experience buying, you know, a car or you know, some feature you thought was yeah. on it maybe that didn't show it. So have that call or put it in the take-home guide, do both, so that when the customer has a reference about their relationship with you, ah, there's the history. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I'll have to keep it in mind for the second edition because um, it's, it's, that's really solid. Uh, the only thing that I would add to that is, is sometimes it's, it's good if you can get a third party to do that interview, I think, because it's, it's often easier to get more candid answers and to figure out where you stand when it's not the same person that, that took them through the process. Well, as long as they have the knowledge. Right, as long as they know what's going on. Yeah, if they but, didn't have the background, the knowledge, then yeah. Because, yeah, doing a buyer experience survey is, is an important part of that as well. So, right. well, good. Okay, going into the last segment of my show where i got some hypothetical, well, one hypothetical question and some real questions I ask my, my guests. So, Dan, this first question, the hypothetical scenario in which you, Dan, have just been hired as vice president of sales at a startup whose sales have stalled out and CEO is anxious to get sales unstuck back on track sales turnaround has to start somewhere. So what two things would do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? That's a very good question. Um, I think the first thing would be to learn, figure out what's going on, talk to salespeople, talk to a, a representative group of prospects. But I think that's kind of kind of a given. That's just the best practice. And then ch- chances are from that thinking, uh, the heuristic that I would use would be a big dumb idea sort of thing. So if I was, you know, twice as greedy and half as smart, what would I do to, to turn things around? Because it sounds like it's a short time frame sort of situation. Um, and, and chances are that thing would be contacting the most valuable customers um, and doing something that, that would be helpful to them uh, to, to restart the conversations with them and finding out from the research that I had done some other ancillary offering we could sell to them. Because um, that tends to be the lowest hanging fruit. Okay. All right. 
Good. So some rapid fire questions. You give me one word answers or you can elaborate a little if you wish. So when you, Dan, are out selling your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? I'm sure it's not an original one, but I think I think helpfulness. Um, I, I think you have to go beyond just pitching and stuff and you actually have to have add a lot of value and context to the decision making process. And I know this is a, this is something that, that you deal with a lot on the show. So I know it's not the was the freshest answer, but um, I think I think that that's the most important thing now is, is letting them know what sort of landscape they're making their buying decision in and where you guys fit into it. Hey, this is a safe space. There are no wrong answers here. <laughs> so, <laughs> who's your sales role model? Good question. Um, I'm a big Neil Rackham fan. Uh, I just really like spin selling. I think it's it was just kind of prophetic and it, based on when it came out. And it's just it was the first book. Maybe there's others. But it was the first one that I read that was just really driven in data and then got across the idea that it's really about sort of you know understanding things, qualifying, building rapport, as opposed to the older books that I had read that were just about kind of like pitching. And um, I think it almost like anticipated where we'd be now in terms of like informational parity between buyers and sellers. Okay. Uh, one book other than your own that every salesperson should read. Well, I guess I kind of led into spin selling, so that's a great one. Um, another one that I've I've really enjoyed recently is this, is Nate Silver's uh, The Signal and the Noise. Um, I, mm-hmm. I really like to read books that aren't directly related to sales to get sales takeaways sometimes, and, yeah. and vice versa. Um, yeah, and, and I guess you know the main takeaway there is just sort of like being a fox and not a hedgehog. And you know, if you haven't read the book, um, foxes are, are sort of drawing from all sorts of different areas. They're not ideologically inclined. They see th- everything through a different lens depending on the situation and hedgehogs are kind of set in their ways and they you know they're, they're either communists or libertarians or republicans or whatever <laughs> they, uh, they see no matter how much data they get to the contrary of the way they think they just zoom in on right that one way of thinking um so i think you can almost apply that to sales too and sort of borrow different strategies for different situations as opposed to having just like one overarching approach for everything mm-hmm. i like that uh, okay, last question. What music's on your playlist these days? Ah, my favorite question. Um, I'm listening to a lot of early Funkadelic. Uh, I've been listening to Clutch, which is this metal band I like. Uh, yeah, what else? Um, some surf rock. I've been listening to like Link Ray and Dick Dale. Oh, Dick Dale, classic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, love, I, 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 love, I play guitar, so I love Oh, yeah. Style, love yeah. to do those surf riffs. I try, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Funkadelic, even like Grand Funk Railroad and those guys? Uh, not so much of that, but it's more, more like uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Oh, Parliament. Okay. Got so, it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Very diverse. Good. Thank you. I try, I try. Yeah. You got some old stuff in there for a young guy. Good stuff. All Let's right. See. Well, Dan, thanks for being my guest today. And I uh, may tell folks how you can, they can find out more about you. Yeah. They can find me at saleschema.com. And if they go to saleschema.com slash accelerate, there'll be a special surprise treat that may or may not be one of my books. Ah. Perfect. There you go. All right. Well, Dan, again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen on your commute, in the gym, or make it part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Dan Englander, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. 
For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. 